Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Shift podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. It takes courage to lay yourself bare on the page, the way today's guest does. Journalist Clover Stroud has written three memoirs, each one more visceral and more exposing than the last. But then Clover has lived no ordinary life, whatever that is. When Clover was 16, her mother suffered a catastrophic fall from a horse, which left her permanently brain damaged, a state in which she remained until her death 22 years later. Two years ago, Clover's sister Nell Gifford, to whom she was exceptionally close, died of breast cancer, age 46. And I found that it really woke me up to the fact that it's going to come for all of us as well. We're all going there. We just don't know how fast we're going there. So, like, be serious about your life and live your life. The darkness that descended in the wake of Nell's death informed the red of my blood, a highly emotional read about living with and learning from grief. Clover joined me from her bedroom in Oxfordshire to talk extremely candidly, so please brace yourself if you're feeling vulnerable, about grief and trauma and how, out of loss, She's finding a new person to be. We also discuss midlife sex, sobriety, why she's looking forward to menopause, and why we're bloody lucky to be middle-aged. Lovely to see you, Clover, and thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. It's lovely to, lovely to see you, Sam. It's a real pleasure. We're in the house in your crazy 
full of kids house where do you sit for interviews right now I'm sitting in my bedroom and I've got this little desk and I actually always turn my desk around so it's got this wallpaper behind me because I started I don't really like working in my bedroom at all normally but during lockdown I started doing it you know there's people all over the house because of five children and Pete was at home and now I actually have kind of trained myself to work in my bedroom you know and you kind of deal with what you've got basically so yeah I've got this nice wallpaper behind me but then complete mess all over the room in front of <laughs> that's all right what we can't see doesn't hurt us um i finished reading the red of my blood last night and I, i'm still reeling i've got to say i still feel a bit emotional so god knows how you feel it was a really really extraordinary experience writing it and i wrote it really quickly i didn't write the first chapter until july august 2020 and i'd finished it by the beginning of 2021 and that was when the wow. kids were also all off school you know it was like at the right at the sort of height of the weirdness of the first year of lockdown and the pandemic so it was a really really intense experience where i felt i i felt as though you know, I'd done. I'd written two books of kind of memoir, life writing, narrative nonfiction, whatever you want to call it, before, and then this kind of just poured out of me. This this third book, and I felt as though creatively I was going into a new place. Just as in my life, I was kind of creatively moving into a new place. You know, after my sister's death, and that's the that's obviously what inspired the book was my sister Nell dying. She did have cancer, but ten days before she died, she was told she had five, possibly ten years to live, and then ten days later, she was dead. And we we were told the day before she was told that she had a day to live. So it was really, really, really shocking. And and I mean, I still feel really shocked by it two years later. But the book is a is a reaction to that. It's kind of the first year after Nell's death, but you wrote it in the latter part of mm. that then. Mm. Yes. So the book goes from the moment of her death, really, the day after her death, to the first anniversary. I'd been working on something else, and then suddenly Nell was dead. When I say Nell's dead, when I talk about going to Nell's grave, I still find it just like, I can still feel myself wanting to cry now, just saying that, because it still seems totally extraordinary and totally weird but as I was going into that year after she died I was also aware that I was experiencing something really quite extraordinary and the the feelings of grief and I have dealt with it before because my mum died but the feelings of grief are so acute and so kind of um, vivid and I wanted to record them I suppose and I was also desperate for something to read at that stage you know, how do I navigate this? How do I get through this? How do I not die with the pain of what's happening? This feels like an unendurable, unbearable pain. And I read all the, you know, classics like C.S. Lewis and Joan Didion are the obvious books that people all read. Mm -hmm. And then I was kind of reaching around, reading a bit of poetry, turning to literature as you know so many of us do to kind of try and understand things and so I thought I need to write down what's happening because I don't know how how I'm going to get through this and I remember looking at other people who like lost their sister and thinking what are they doing like I wanted to study them like how come they they haven't died of the pain and how come they're two years later able to like laugh and have fun and what are the kind of tricks of dealing with this grief and so in a way it was like a study in in what was happening to me and because I was also aware at the same time that this most horrific pain and horrific sense of shock and loss that there was a kind of I mean I always think of those you know like the inside of a gemstone or a crystal when when you see it smashed open and it's got all that glittering color inside it like 
Mm. extraordinary color and light and images and although it was often extremely you know they were very painful and I write about like the feeling of feeling as though someone had like stuck a gold dagger into the edge of my throat or like rack dragged brambles across my palms like the pain of it was really really acute but it was extraordinary I suppose and in pain we learn so much about ourselves as well and I had this image of being in this wilderness in this wild wild forest and I didn't know how to get through it and so yeah the book is is about kind of going through that forest and my allegorical and literal emotional journey through that year and also wrestling with the thing of like where does somebody go that sense of when someone dies the sense of where have you gone where on earth are you like can I talk to you can I communicate with you what do I actually think about death and life it's me kind of wrestling with those questions to which there are obviously no absolute or clear answers but it's my kind of attempt to grapple with them in some way I suppose I want to talk to you a bit about the kind of the sense of a quest, really, that runs mm. through the book. But before we do, can we talk a bit more about mm. Nell and your kind of family background, just to give yeah. some So we, Nell and I were the youngest of five children, and we, my three elder siblings, we share a mum, and we've got a different dad. And there was quite a big age gap between us. We grew up in a really loving home. It was interesting. We, it's kind of a bit like how I live now. We lived in the country. It was quite a scruffy house. We were encouraged to kind of create, I suppose. And um, my dad worked in TV, and my mum didn't work and but she brought us all up and um and Nell and I had a real kind of fierce closeness we also had that like fierce rage towards each other of of sisters as well but um it was very very beautiful childhood and I am eternally grateful to that because when I was 16 and Nell was 18 mum went riding and I was in the first term of my A-levels and she fell off her horse and she had a really horrendous accident where she was left with really profound brain damage and she didn't die but she was in a state she wasn't in a coma she at all she could walk around she could make strange noises but she couldn't look after herself in any way and she was um doubly incontinent and um epileptic and you know she had lots of kind of mental and physical problems at that point and she needed to be looked after we tried to look look after her for two years so me and Nell went through that really really weird time of mum's accident of like dealing with your parent being totally totally changed and um two years after the accident she went into a nursing home and she was in that state for 22 years so she was looked after it was as though she had like acute um Alzheimer's but a bit more intense than that but that was kind of a bit what she was like so Nell and I were like really we really were together through that and it was such a weird experience that you know having walked through that with her is a was a very powerful part of our of our sisterhood I suppose and Nell after university she started a circus I mean beautiful circus and um she was just an incredibly creative, incredibly unusual person. She was a very, very difficult person. She was a major diva and um, life was about her creativity. She was totally driven by her own creativity. And she was an unusual person to be a sister to. And I was very much her younger sister. But, you know, through when I was 44 and she died, 44 years, we had a really, really passionately close. We would fall out in massive ways. We would then pick up our friendship, our relationship and, you know, be there for one another very, very quickly. And I often find myself reading old emails from her and like witnessing these fights that we had. And then like, oh, do you want to meet tomorrow? Do you want to meet and 
go and see our dad or do you want to meet and go and take the kids out whatever just like making plans straight away and it's really lovely kind of tracing that and that um that relationship that we had but I I just really 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 miss her so much I really do I was reading a piece that you'd written after Nell died and where you said that Nell was always one I went to when I was looking for home yeah definitely (laughs) that yeah definitely she because I suppose because we were both adolescents together at that moment we were kind of forming you know out of childhood into adulthood because we were very, very much together at that time of mum's accident. And it was quite weird. My dad was working in London. We were living in this house in the country on our own. It's like really quite... It's kind of weird, isn't it, when you say it? It was totally weird. Like we had a lot of freedom. Mum was completely brain damaged. It was totally traumatic. Yet we were living in this house in the country. It's kind of like every sort of teenage fantasy. We had complete freedom from our parents. We could have boys over, we took drugs, we'd had parties, but we were also dealing with like the weird, massive trauma of our of our mum being in a coma for several months and then waking up and being really ill and looked after by nurses. So it was a kind of incredibly bonding thing that. And I feel as though the loss of my relationship with her now, you know, the fact that I cannot talk to her about that time, the fact that nobody else went through that exact time with me and that she could make me so cross and I could make her so cross as well. But when I think about her, I think about exactly that sense of absolute familiarity, of absolutely knowing yourself, your insides, your history, your DNA, the stuff you read, the stuff you you watched, all the stuff that made you as a child and that made you as an adolescent. And I guess that that is the feeling of home for me which I'm kind of always looking for actually but yeah it was a very very important relationship to me my relationship with her. I've read a few interviews this morning and I mean there's uh, an interview weirdly that you and Nell and Emma your older sister did like two weeks before Nell Mm. died Mm. and you described, I thought it was really interesting that you described your mum as having made an amazing circus of a life. And then Nell literally went and did that. Yeah, yeah, she did. She absolutely did. And her circus was very, very much inspired by our childhood, by the kind of images, the ponies, the, you know, we had a kind of quite idyllic rural life with a rambling house with apple trees. And it wasn't smart at all. It was quite a big house, but it wasn't like a smart scene it was very kind of fallen down and homemade and nothing was decorated mum just kind of put loads of pictures up all over the walls and she would never have wallpapered or anything like that or bought expensive sofas everything she did was kind of like put together in some way from old bits that belonged to her mum or and also because my dad was was working in tv so there was quite often things like props flags hats things like you know a a production of hamlet he'd done they um were just around on the kitchen table around on bookshelves and so on and we had an amazing dressing up box with loads of clothes in it and Nell then took a lot of that stuff and turned it into her circus basically especially in the first few years when it was really really homemade and all her friends helped out and my ex-husband was like the musical director it was when I had just had my first child and it was like a kind of dressing up box or child's toy box all coming alive and lots of the toys in it were literally the stuff that had been in our childhood so that's kind of magic you know it was kind of magic definitely 
Nell had cancer on and off for three or four years, Mm. didn't she, before she died. How did that change the balance of the relationship between you? Because you've talked a lot about how she was kind of the boss of you. Mm. And it said rather poignantly, I thought, you felt like a cut price version of Nell, which like made me really sad. And it's not true, Clover. No, I haven't really felt like that. Nell was like, she was very tall. She was very striking looking. She was very like, very blonde and very kind of wild genuinely wild very kind of glittering very you know she had like blazing eyes and I have always felt like that's actually but I was very much like her younger sister and that kind of status I mean I can see it with my children now that status was you know it's really important that Dash is older than Lester and he lets Lester know all the time and it's Dash like now. Yeah, Dash is really like now. Dash is so like now. <laughs> I must say to listeners, you must look at Clover's Instagram, which is a brilliant Instagram about life and love and loss and motherhood. And Dash is the lead character, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I know. He even looks like, you know, he's very big physically like now. He's got very bright blonde hair. And he has got this, what Nell had was an absolute sense of her own purpose and her own show literally going on around her you know and in a way that could be very difficult to be her sister too and her creativity absolutely dominated all of our lives and it was the thing that she talked about she thought about she obsessed about I've never seen anybody live a creative life in that way it was absolutely obsessional and it was quite difficult to be around because you know you could be doing something or I'd say oh yeah I've just written this book And she'd be talking about some kind of something to do with the circus, as she always was. And then I'd say, oh, yeah, I've got my books coming out or something. And she'd go, right, okay. Well, anyway, I've just recently... (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, but about me. (laughs) But it was a kind of, you know, in a way, as I do with Dash, it's kind of just what she was like. And she was such a such an unusual person to be around that you sort of deal with that, I suppose. Uh, You know, creatively, I have felt since her death, and this is also, I think, like forcing myself to come to terms with her death in some ways, that I do feel creatively as though I have moved into a different space that I couldn't really inhabit when she was alive. And it's a difficult thing to say this, but I think I am going to start thinking about this more because in death, when somebody dies, it's utterly awful. It smashes your life into pieces. But there are things that you didn't expect, which are like these real gems that you you earn. And you you know they are hard, hard, hard won. And they're, they're so much more valuable I suppose because of this like terrible terrible thing you've had to go through to get them and I do feel as though there's something in the way that I am living now which is changing and it may be because of my age it may be because of who I am but I do feel like it is also a reflection of like having been close to Nell's death and I mean genuinely the feeling of like fuck it one life live it right now it does really really make you think that you still worry about all the small things it does not as though you stop worrying about the small things it's not that at all but like I feel like it gives you a sort of power in a way because like when you've dealt with the death of somebody really close to you then there is like a kind of fearlessness I suppose and an ability to to realize I can deal with a lot I can endure I can I can cope with you know with a lot and I can create a life that is still beautiful and is still vivid maybe it's more beautiful and more vivid because I have stood in the room you know with death I really like that notion that you talk about in the book of death as a noun mm. you know a mm. thing not a thing you do but a thing that you meet mm. almost mm. 
And it is, you know, when Nell, Nell died very, very quickly, there were two days in the hospital in Gloucester. And I was told when I got to the hospital, she had, you know, and they said that awful phrase, it's now just a, a question of making her comfortable and protecting her dignity. And it's such a horrific thing, like the reality of like, I, I felt as though I was standing in a corridor with a kind of train careering towards me or a bull galloping towards me. You want to go like, no just stop this isn't not supposed to happen now this was going to happen in a few years time just stop 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 and that kind of feeling of like there's nothing you can do the powerlessness that you have when it's arriving and I wrote a lot about this in the book about this feeling of this blue this petrol blue color of it was like feathers from a big bird like a crow or rook or something that kind of petroly color that when you sometimes see them or see them dead it's like that was pressing down on us and I just felt that so strongly and there was nothing nothing you could do nothing that we could do at all and you have to kind of just relent you have to just and it's such a horrific and also incredibly humbling as a human being because we're kind of used to doing the stuff we want to do aren't we we're used to trying to make that thing happen or like work harder to make the thing happen or get the thing you want or be in the place you want when death comes there's nothing you can do and and I found that it really woke me up to the fact that it's going to come for all of us as well. We're all going there. We just don't know how fast we're going there. So, like, be serious about your life and live your life. And Nell definitely did that. You know, she had a, she was only 46. She was the same age that I am now, but she lived a really, really extraordinary life. Um, and she had a circus. But I think whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you do, whatever the thing in life that you like doing, taking it seriously and putting everything into it, it's a great thing as a human being you know it kind of it makes you feel as though you're alive she was so alive you know she was such an alive very very vividly alive person when she was here and I'm trying to come to terms with this idea that the amount of years that she had was her lifetime it wasn't like oh it was cut short and we could have had another four decades that was her lifetime and that's why I suppose it does you know make you start thinking about we have to realize that the days are precious they are precious every single day is precious definitely are you saying in the book that you wish that you could be middle-aged with yeah with now yeah I really really do I wish so my last three children I had in 2012 14 and 16 so during and she was diagnosed in 2015 and she died in 2019 so the last four years of her life I had like three very young children which is very very deranging basically and, and it's <laughs> difficult to see you are also in a tunnel and now life is actually I mean my youngest is five and life is a tiny bit calmer actually from that weird vortex of babyhood and I wish I just wish that we'd been yeah in our 50s I wish we'd been like in our mid 50s together I think that would have been fun to have that because what I'm feeling at the moment and this may change but I'm feeling a power and a strength which I find really fucking incredible and I feel right now I feel this kind of like that sense of of life of living my life and as you go into your late 40s the feeling of becoming more concentrated on your life, I suppose. She had two children as well. I'd been married twice. I mean, I'm still married. I've had two husbands. Nell had been married and divorced. So we'd had like seven children, three husbands. We'd created two careers. We'd built houses. We'd had tragedy and trauma and getting wasted and all the fun of life. But it had been very, very frenetic, you know, in the way that your 30s and early 40s are when you're kind of building it all and trying to figure out who, who you are. And I feel like I do kind of know who I am now. Finally, I feel much less insecure than I did. And yeah, I wish we'd had that time in our 50s to like 
be middle-aged women and go and I don't know <laughs> go and try on lipstick together or go and like yeah. go swimming in rivers I wish we'd done more stuff like that or just go and I mean she'd actually given up drinking and I've given up drinking recently but like go and just like experience more bits of life together I would love to have had that without all of the kind of emotional clutter I suppose of your 30s and 40s that sort of anxiety and neuroses and insecurity I wish we'd had more of that bit of grown-up life in some way we touched earlier on the fact that the book is in a way it's a quest Mm -hmm. and in a way it has that in common with the wild other but it's kind of a quest for identity and who clover is i don't want to say without now well it is no it is like that actually it's like who will you be now and who will you maybe become who are you going to be changed into because of this most serious thing which is like being in the room while death comes in there so I I have a horse and I love riding and they've always been part of my life and that was like one of the ways for me that I felt less awful especially in the first few months when I just felt absolutely horrifically awful and broken was to go and be with the animals and go be with the horses and then I started thinking about Arthurian legends and I've always like I did a like an extended essay on Arthurian literature when I was at university and I've always like those images of the knights and Arthur Pendragon and Gawain and Lancelot. I really like Anglo-Saxon, Middle English poetry. Beautiful poems where you felt the poet was often like really dealing with death and dealing with facing it. And and I was very influenced by all that when I was writing the book. And I just saw myself like like a knight. I thought this is, or not like a knight, like the knights were going to help me. So they kind of ride through the narrative with me. They kind of pull me along through the forest and I feel really emotional when I think about the nights, actually, because I find these, this idea of this questing and going out from the place of safety, which is the court, out into the wilderness to try and find some kind of meaning. And that's basically exactly what I was doing, was like trying to find some kind of meaning for what felt like this just horrific, senseless loss. And that's what I really do towards the end of the book, is like really try and work out what, what it is about and what death is about and what is the meaning. And I don't come to any like massive conclusions other than you know how we're talking now about like living life I suppose another thing that I said like is maybe an interesting life is one where there is like quest journey after quest journey that we are always searching for something and I think that that really helps you to face up to and embrace the difficult stuff in life because now I'll die but I've also had lots of other kind of traumatic experiences in my life and I think as as many many of us have as well but I think that um when these traumatic things happen it isn't doesn't mean that life is broken or that it's kind of irredeemably destroyed that the good bit is gone but actually that it it is life it is the nature of life and therefore going on a quest dealing with my sister's death dealing with the other things that I have dealt with in my life makes me feel less hopeless about facing up to difficult stuff I suppose and maybe the next quest is like going into the middle bit of my life and I'm really really interested about what's going to happen physically in the next 10 years in the next 20 years I'm quite nervous about it but I'm, I'm also kind of quite curious about it I suppose and I quite like the idea of power and finding a new kind of power in ways that you didn't expect and that's in a way what you're doing when you deal with death and tragedy you're like finding I've found huge power and huge creativity in traumatic experiences I wasn't expecting that at all so I suppose it's like some kind of redemption as well isn't it to the to the, all the shit that life throws at us. Mm. 
I mean, we're just not very good, are we, at, you know, for good reason, at, I, I don't want to say, this sounds just so wanky, but kind of embracing the darkness, yeah. if you like, because we're so, for good reason, very afraid of it. It makes it hard to see what good might come out of it. And it reminds me, this is such a banal analogy compared to your, you know, Knights of Arthur's Court and all of that. But it reminds me of that Pixar film Inside Out, where Joy is always trying to stop sadness, be sad. Right. Because she can't accept that there's a place for sadness. Right. And that sadness brings anything to the picture. So I was thinking about that when I was reading The Red of My Blood, and in fact, your other books as well, that we kind of hide from trauma and we try to compartmentalize it and put it away and not look at it. Mm. But the trauma makes us who we are. Completely. And I remember having some therapy in my 20s and saying to this therapist, like, I've got all this trauma and all this kind of pain, which takes me into kind of dangerous places and makes me want to kind of want to put myself in danger I suppose and I remember saying to her how can I just get rid of this thing inside me and how can I just get rid of this sort of darkness and this place which I I know is making me do things which are hurting myself and I remember thinking I must be able to just kind of remove it from myself in some way or another and I just always remember that her saying you can't that is totally you know who you are but you you will find ways of kind of living beside it and living with it. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know, sometimes when I say to people, oh, are you happy? And then I think, what a ridiculous question. That yeah. <laughs> Who's happy? <laughs> like, what is happy? Yeah. You know, I say, oh, I want my kids to be happy. I mean, do I really want them to be happy? Of course, I, I want them to have, you know, an interesting life I don't think is a happy life. And I don't know anybody who's happy anyway. <laughs> so it's something that's completely unachievable. And wanting happiness for other people is like, or for yourself or your children, whatever, it's like, 
it's not really achievable, more learning to live beside and process and kind of alchemize pain. I hope that this book might make people like talk about death more as well and kind of like think about death and have conversations about death because that feels like a really important way to help you live a interesting life as well that it's a really really crucially important thing to talk about and I talk about it with my kids all the time now and we go to Nell's grave and we sort of hang out there or have an argument there or the kids are mucking around but it's like I definitely want to feel as though death is normal in our lives. And I do not say that in a morbid way at all. I say that in the most alive way that I possibly can. It's just one of those things that we don't know how to talk about or we're not allowed to talk about like like sex, like bodily functions, yeah. like all your books you've written vividly about sex. Why is that? Why are we so scared of I don't put sex and death in the same sentence, but they are in the same book in this case. And they totally are. They make us feel a sense of fear and shame, don't they? I mean, the amount of shame around sexual desire or sexual pleasure is kind of extraordinary. And I think it's kind of like a, a hangover from Victorian England, which has, you know, remained really, really prevalent throughout the 20th century. And we're still kind of pushing against the tide of it, I suppose. I mean, it's difficult because... I think it's really good to articulate a desire or a love for somebody. I kind of, I quite often talk about my relationship with my husband, Pete, who I really love. I really like him. He's a laugh. He's really clever. We have a good partnership. I also really, really fancy him. I really want to have sex with him. And people I know find, like, especially if you talk about it in a long-term relationship, I think it's kind of okay to say, oh, you know, I've been dating and it's been so exciting. And people are, are quite happy from what I what I witnessed to talk about the desire in short-term relationships but not in long-term relationships and I think that's really interesting that like why do we have a kind of almost like a squeamishness about the idea that you might be with somebody and want to have sex with them for yeah you won't still want to have sex with someone and you're in your 50s or 40s (laughs) god forbid but it's so mad and it's so weird because when I look back on sex in my 20s and 30s with like different people and one-night stands or short-term relationships it was rubbish because I didn't know who I was. And that person didn't know who I was either, for sure. And of course, there's a novelty and the excitement of novelty, but life is about a hell of a lot more than novelty. And I really love the thing of kind of commitment and knowing somebody properly and the the risks inherent in it. You know, we think a long-term relationship is boring. Marriage must be boring, commitment boring. Mm. Actually, you're promising your entire life to one person. It's quite risky. <laughs> yeah. Leap of faith. <laughs> There's like a habit. You know, our fear of death and our fear of sex is like is partly maybe a habit as well. That's the way that people have always talked about it. And so we will go on doing it. But, you know, conversations like this, conversations, it is opening up, isn't it? It is changing. I think social media is amazing how it's kind of encouraging the conversations around many things which are pointless and many things which are really important, like sex and death, which I I love to talk about these things. Yeah, I mean, it was so interesting when I was researching The Shift and I had this group of 50 women that I'd canvassed from social media who I would just sound out on various subjects. And it was so interesting, the sex, when we got to sex and relationships Usually I would email them and then the answers would start pinging back quite quickly and then they would dribble in over the next 48 hours. Nothing, like tumbleweed, total silence. And then I sent another one saying, oh, clearly nobody's got anything to say about this. 
And then they started to come in. People really wanted to talk mm. about it. We know that they loved it, that they hated it, that they wanted to leave their long-term partner. Several of them said to me, I don't, I've told you stuff I haven't even told, you know, my best mm. friends. Mm. And it's such a big part of mm. life. Why do you think that we're so kind of... Well, I think it's part of that thing that you were saying that it's, it's like, oh, you've been married 20 years, you're boring yeah. now life's boring it's partly that thing I think from when you're a little kid and it's like oh your mum and dad yeah, did yeah. it yeah. you know it's like well yeah clearly your mum and dad did it too because you're but also I do think it's it's slightly a female thing female desire people still feel uncomfortable around that maybe not so much the younger younger women that you might talk to or see on social media but also then it's even more transgressive if you're a woman in her late 40s or 50s or god forbid older who still has sex still finds her partner sexually attractive or is out there having sex with new men or mm. i ask people all kinds of personal questions about their wombs but i very rarely say to them so tell me how's how's your sex yeah. life you're 53 where's your sex yeah. life but so i feel too embarrassed and nervous quite often to talk to people about is it. it it's ridiculous the idea as well though that we equate sex good sex sexual de desirability just with a young body basically isn't it Basically, everybody who's young is quite attractive in some way or another. And it's like, well, they are allowed to have sex because they've got young skin and young hair and, you know, got the right kind of body. And it's so weird, isn't it? The idea that as soon as our faces are changing or our bodies are changing, we don't have a right to that desire. When actually we understand so much more about who we are as, as human beings, as souls, as women. And that's sexy, <laughs> Yeah. I think it does all tie into the aging that you touched on earlier about kind of being interested in what's going to happen in this next 10 mm. years of your life because you know aging is still a bit of a taboo for mm. women mm. and I think that society values you because you're fertile it values you because you're young and attractive and and actually I think it's starting to change a little bit how are you feeling I mean you're now the same age as Nell was Strange. Um, yeah. How are you feeling about the aging process? I mean, Nell was 46. I'm basically, I'm still a tiny bit younger. She died just before her 47th birthday, like uh, about a month before her birthday. And it's strange. I feel a sort of safety in being younger than she was. And then when I am older than she will be in April, I feel quite scared about that. And my mum was actually in her, she was like 52 when she had her accident and sort of like she died at that point. And so I sometimes fear a great deal, like getting to 52 and then I'm going to be kind of free falling. She was a great mother. She was a great woman, but I've never had a relationship with her as, a, as an older woman, I suppose. And I do feel nervous. I also feel a massive sense of privilege. And we talk about different sorts of privilege so often, but the privilege of aging may be something that needs to be talked about a bit more because, well, you are, and it's absolutely brilliant that you are. But, you know, what's the opposite of aging? It's dying. It's being dead. And Nell's dead. She didn't get to age. And so I think I feel um, like I need to kind of really go for it <laughs> as much as I can, maybe to like compensate for the fact that she's, you know, she's dead. I didn't really feel like that with mum. Somebody, people have said to me before, do you think you're living in the way that you do to kind of compensate for your mum's loss and or for what she lost? And I didn't really feel that. But I think I do feel that with Nell. 
And I'm 46. I'm still having my periods. I've had a lot of like very up and down times emotionally in my life. I've had a lot of anxiety and depression. I've had very bad postnatal depression twice with my third and fourth child. I've had loads of therapy. I've really kind of faced a lot of anxiety and depression. And I, when I had postnatal depression, I always used to think, oh my God, like what are the menopause going to be like? This is going to be really, really scary. <laughs> But um, at the moment, I'm feeling. I mean, we've talked about this before, but I'm I'm feeling okay, and I'm feeling um really curious about what's going what's going to happen. I feel really curious about you know the journey into like my body changing and HRT and what I'm going to do because I haven't you know it hasn't yet. Or if it has, maybe I'm distracting it with so much other kind of activity. So much else going, going on. on. Yeah. And I do feel my body. I feel myself sweating like hell a lot of the time. But the anxiety mm. the thing that's totally changed my life in the last few months, Sam, is like stopping drinking. I know it's like, oh, yeah. God, another person stopped drinking. <laughs> so Nell stopped in the last three years of her life because of all her treatment. And she was really, really articulate about it. And the last few years of her life were incredibly productive creatively. And she said that that's partly because of not drinking and the feeling of your life force flowing. And I wonder whether if I'd never drunk in my life, would I be feeling as good as I am now, actually? Maybe not drinking is, you know, it, it's in in relief against the fact that I did drink quite a lot. I don't think I was an alcoholic, but I was like, you know, drinking wine, drinking vodka, enjoying getting drunk, enjoying getting wasted. Definitely, definitely. That was a huge part of my life. And then in August, I felt like, okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to stop because I was thinking about it too much. And I was finding one of my children, I think you can guess which one it was. <laughs> it was <really laughs> difficult. How did you guess? Yeah. And I was drinking partly to deal with the strain. And Pete, my husband, is away all the time, so I spend a lot of time on my own with the kids. I was drinking to deal with it, and I stopped. And I wanted to be the same age as Nell was. I didn't want to be older than Nell was when she died and still drinking. I felt as though I would be betraying her in some weird way. I don't know why exactly, but I I definitely felt I have to stop while I'm 46 too. To start with, it was quite difficult. I didn't really enjoy it. But when I got to about three and a half, four months, it really changed in terms of how I felt I was processing things and how I was able to deal with the normal stresses and strains and worries about work and money and the children and all the normal stuff that we deal with which in the past would have made me feel like oh my god something awful is going to happen and you know that kind of feeling of of real anxiety and the waking up with that galloping anxiety and walking around with a sense of dread is gone it, like that anxiety is gone and you know we still deal with the financial ups and downs and the worries about whether my book's gonna you know what's gonna happen with my career all the stuff if the kids are okay but that kind of really fucking awful anxiety is not there I'm really, really, really hoping like maybe that's going to help me through my late 40s a bit, I suppose. I'm really, really hoping that it doesn't come back because being liberated from it has been really extraordinary. And I feel as though my work and my writing life is is kind of growing in a way creatively, but also just like living my normal life. I was talking to somebody on Instagram about it, actually, and she said she'd given up and she said, I take real joy in just ridiculous things. And she said, like, yesterday I saw a really big seagull and it made me so happy. And I thought, I totally get what you're talking about. Like suddenly watching my dogs run across the field, I feel like a really deep sense of pleasure and joy. And I do miss drinking and especially when I'm with friends and they're like pouring that first glass feel a bit lonely miss that moment but the overall the life force that Nell talked about the flowing of the life life force feels really 
exciting and I'm really curious about the next bit. It definitely does feel as though, you know, we were talking about going into the forest, going into midlife, going through my menopause. It does feel like another quest. And I'm really like looking at other women and looking at what other women are doing and how they're getting through. And I found you really inspiring. Your book really has been incredibly sort of important and interesting to read and equipping yourself, I suppose, with as much information. Also not getting overwhelmed. You know, you can go onto social media and spend the entire day reading about the menopause and different things that you could do or not do. And there have been times where I thought, okay, I'm going to do this, that and the other and eat all these different things. And I'm going to, I'm really curious. I'm nervous. I'm nervous as well. (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You know, also you might just be on those people who just like sails through it. Honestly, a lot of people do. It's just that a lot of people don't as well. I suppose because I've had such bad depression in the past, I felt like, well, it's going to be big Mm. for me. You know, I've got lots of kids, but I haven't found it easy. I've, I've had lots and lots of psychological symptoms as a result of motherhood definitely and I suppose Mm. that I felt well then obviously it's going to it's going to be really really difficult for me but I mean I wish my mom and also my aunt my mum's sister was killed in an accident in 2017 and she was a really really very strong woman she was 70 when she died and she was very cool she just always dressed in from charity shops she was riding horses she she was a real fucking living her life on her own terms and um, she seemed to just go through it. And mum is what I can remember. I mean, she was only 52 when she had her accident. But I think she kind of just went through it. I don't know. Is it quite likely that you'll have the same reaction as your mother? Well, I've read that it was. But, you know, I went into menopause at 46. Mm. And when I asked my mum, she didn't until her mid-50s. Right. So, you know, that is a received wisdom. But there are so many of those things around menopause those kind of received wisdoms. At one point, I think you said in the book about being tired, bored and having a mashed mm. head. And you were talking about whether it's grief or the pandemic. And I actually wrote next to it all menopause. <laughs> you know, often I have had the feeling of exactly the sort of confusion or a couple of years ago when I was having anxiety still, or a year ago when I was having anxiety, sometimes people would say to me, like, that sounds very, very, very menopausal. The no drinking thing has really has really changed. I don't know as well whether the no drinking thing will, you know, maybe it all calms down, or maybe it becomes more Everybody says stopping drinking is, I mean, I was a bit, well, I was really resistant to that because I did used to be a kind of get through the door from work, give me a drink sort of person. And I actually stopped drinking when I had COVID in October. And I can't say I've given up because I have had the occasional Mm. drink, but I don't enjoy it anymore. And I used to love Mm. drinking. It's my favorite mm. thing. I don't enjoy it. I don't have more than one. And I feel crap anyway afterwards. But then, so why don't you stop? I kind of have, yeah. really. Yeah. You know what I mean, it's just that occasionally I have one and then I think, oh, I don't know why I bothered to do that. So I consider I've stopped, but I feel that I need to say that I have occasionally had one and it was pointless. Yeah. We were in France on Hordesh. We were in this hire car, which had broken down. We were sitting beside a, this was in August, by a um, motorway with all these cars thundering past, all the children. And I remember thinking, right, I'm going to stop drinking now and I'm going to turn this really quite shit moment actually into a good moment because I'm going to use this as the moment when I stop drinking. And also I felt like I couldn't, I've never really wanted to have just one drink. I've always been one mm. bottle maybe. <laughs> the menopause, do you think there's a moment where you kind of, that was really interesting, you just said you went into your menopause in your at 46. Did you know, like, is there a moment when you know no. that it's happening? 
with the benefit of hindsight, I was 46 when I started having perimenopausal symptoms. But I didn't know that because as far as I was concerned, menopause was hot flushes and your period stopping. But I'd always had like nuts periods, either buckets of blood or nothing and then more buckets. And I didn't have hot flushes until I was about 48, 49. But all of the kind of mental health symptoms, the anxiety and the brain fog and the plummeting confidence and all of that stuff, I totally had that. But it was only with the benefit of hindsight that I knew that that was perimenopause. I know, because also then you could think, well, last year, for example, when I was having really bad anxiety, I was probably quite a lot of people around the world were having bad anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Also, yeah. then you think, well, was that the start of my menopause? Was that menopausal symptoms? Was it the pandemic? Was it dealing with Nell's death? Was it the kind of environmental factors as well? Yeah. How do you... Yeah, exactly. You don't know. I am really curious, and I'm really curious about the HRT route and whether to do that. But until it really starts, and I've done sort of like quite a bit of research into it, but until it really starts, I don't really know which way I'll... No, exactly. I mean, it's the thing that is pretty much happens with everything connected to women's health. It always becomes black or white, mm. doesn't it? You do this or you do that, and whatever you do feels slightly judged mm. and wrong. And yeah, it feels like it's going that way a bit at the moment, but... You know, it was that way before, to be honest. It's just that you couldn't get it and you felt like it was a bad thing and you were letting the system yeah. down. What do you think about um, having stuff done to your face? Botox, basically Botox. I don't know what else you can do to your face, but like Botox is a thing. I don't, but I think that's mainly because I'm a scaredy cat, not because I'm like morally upright or anything. No, lots of people do. I mean, Marion Keys has been on a couple of times and she's quite happy to talk about she Botoxes. Yeah. I think it's not... Like, you know, right at the beginning when people were having Botox and they ended up looking like the Bride of Wildenstein, you know, (laughs) I I think it's moved on from that. But no, I don't. People talk about baby. I don't know if that's new, but I keep hearing baby Botox. Oh, yeah. Little fillers and stuff. I don't know. I think each to their own. I don't. But loads of people do. Yeah, I feel sometimes I feel I don't know, I want to see more older faces. You know, I think that like a woman's face in her six fifties, sixties, seventies, that older woman's face where nothing's been done to it, just life has been done to it, is really beautiful and but then I dye my hair and I wouldn't dream of not well at the moment. Well I haven't dyed it for a while actually, but you know, I like having my highlights done, maybe it's no different from that at all. But that thing of I want to see somebody's life on their face I suppose yeah I really like that and I like I I often wonder if that's the reason that I like Scandinavian crime series so much (laughs) because Scandinavian actors have rarely been oh really worked on you you can quite often see women in their 40s 50s and 60s who look like yeah yeah it's just so kind of life-affirming I mean literally it's literally life-affirming literally is isn't it I want to look good for my age you know I don't I don't think the thing of chasing youth and chasing a desire to look much younger but I mean I wouldn't judge somebody else for doing it but I'm I'm interested by it as well because when you suddenly are looking at somebody's face and you think something a bit you know you can't smell that Mm. thing of it being a bit surprised or a bit I don't know I guess I yeah I want to I want to feel that I'm seeing the whole life there yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I've been sitting here while you've been talking, looking under my glasses at the bags under my eyes and thinking, what would my face look like without those bags? But I'm not going to do anything about it. Well, I it. can start. I've started doing that to my eyelids because they kind of are starting to droop down or on my chin and thinking, yeah, I can imagine it. Oh, yeah, that is quite <laughs> tempting, actually. The chin thing. We are both now sitting here pulling our chins back. <laughs> 
We should do the questions that I always ask at the end. I apologise in advance if this question is more upsetting than it's meant to be. What's your emotional age? My emotional age is 46. I'm 46 and it's taken a lot of living and a lot of pain, a lot of joy, a lot of anguish to get to this age. And I'm really proud of it. I know that sort of the impulse that I feel the same as when I came into adulthood, you know, in my, let's say, early 20s. But I am really different. I am really changed. I'm totally changed from then. I'm much older. I'm much wiser. (laughs) I'm much freer, much happier, I'm much sadder. I'm much more myself. So I definitely feel as though I am the age I am right now. I hate it when people go, oh, God, I'm so middle-aged. Fucking lucky you. You're middle-aged, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know that that's a reaction to Nell dying. Obviously, it is. When people put on Instagram, oh, my God, I'm going to be 40 next week or whatever. How I can't believe it. How awful. I've got lots of much older friends. One of my best friends is 80. He's amazing. He's a totally amazing man. And I was talking about my age, and he was saying, you're so young. And, you know, it's perspective, isn't it? So, yeah, my emotional age is definitely a hard one and happy and sad, 46. By extension of that, who would be your old bird role model? Helen Mirren is pretty fucking amazing, isn't she? She's amazing. I love her attitude. I love her sense of being totally who she is and kind of unashamedly who she is. She's dead now, but Diana Attle, just before she died, she published one of her last books. I think that thing to go on working and to go on writing, you know, Mary Wesley published her first novel in her 70s, that thing of working and working, I love that, creating. Joan Didion, I mean, look at her writing, it was incredible. And she was also writing about such difficult things in the last decade of her life, writing about her husband's death and her daughter's death at that time. And that kind of fearless sense of creativity I find really inspiring right on through life. So, yeah, I think Joan Didion is a writer. I love that idea of going on writing to whatever age I get to. I'd love to do that. What advice would you give younger women? To live it, to stop thinking that you've got to do something before you get to a certain age, which is usually 30. For me, it was an obsession. I've got to have written a book by the time I'm 30, or I might as well not because I'll be such a failure. Ridiculous idea. And I think to be serious about your work and to be serious about actually about creativity, I mean, creativity is definitely becoming a more important force for me in my life. I was always writing, I was making my living as a journalist in my 20s, but I wish I'd put a bit more time into being a bit more serious about my writing in a way and reading more poetry and reading more short stories and reading more nonfiction. And so I guess whatever you're doing, whether it's writing or hairdressing or catering or running or being at home looking after somebody whatever you're doing put your whole you know like as I'm talking to I'm wanting to like put my face forward to you like really really face it and really live it and don't worry about yeah doing things by a certain age because you've got a long long time ahead of you and I mean when I look back at my younger self I think oh don't worry so much but then it's like saying oh don't breathe so much (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to worry that amount. But I think that feeling of being serious about the thing that you're doing at that time, you know, it may not be the thing you do for your job or your career. It may be some other part of your life, a hobby or something else that you're doing. It doesn't have to be career related. But like to give it your all, I think is is what I would say to a younger woman, definitely. Cool. 
What book would you recommend? It could be something that's been really, really significant to you or just something that you've read recently that you've loved. I've recently read a book which I really, really, really loved and she's got quite a complicated Danish name and it's about death, actually, and it's called When Death Takes Something From You, You Give It Back and it's about the death of her son in 2015. He was in his early 20s and he died in a really, really tragic way and I absolutely loved it. She's called Nadja Mary 8 when death takes something from you you give it back and it's a very very slender book and it's very very poetic it's very very beautiful and it's about facing her son's death I just kind of stumbled upon it. I can't remember where I saw it written about. I was very pleased that I found it after I'd completely finished uh, The Red of My Blood because we wrote about things in a similar-ish way and we did things with the text. It made me feel so much less alone in dealing with Nell's death. And it's a beautifully written book and um, it's very emotional. I mean, I read it absolutely weeping. It's it's beautiful, beautiful piece of writing. What's your superpower? At the moment, my superpower is sobriety, actually. I have to say, it's like feeling yeah. into everything. So so that's a kind of localised thing. I think I'm quite fearless. I'm not very afraid of anything, really, and I'm getting less afraid of things. And that's an incredibly liberating feeling. And I worry so much less about other people's opinions. The relief of that as you get older is massive, isn't it? That feeling of, yeah, you know, I'm living my life and it doesn't matter so I think it's a kind of sober fearlessness. <laughs> <laughs> um, and lastly, how many fucks do you give? Zero. Just no fucks at all. I really, really don't. And that's where the fearlessness comes from. And in a way, that's where the creativity comes from, because you're you're prepared to take risks. You're prepared to, to kind of put yourself on the line. I love writing because it enables me to go deeply into my emotional life I love the feeling of examining what stuff even painful stuff feels like and I really don't care how I'm judged for it at all I just don't care about other people's opinions now or I'm not going to be like hindered by them and that's a brilliant brilliant part of getting older and I love it and I wish that when you're younger you knew how liberating that feeling is basically that's great. Thank you, Clover. Thank you for being so open and frank and fearless. <laughs> well, it's been really nice talking to you, Sam. Thank you very much. It's been awesome. I've loved it. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 